most of our body, most of our neurology is taken up with exactly the same things that animals' bodies and neurology is taken up with, which is the incredibly complex task of moving physically through space and equally complex task of knowing what's safe and what's not safe, what's nourishing and what's poison. These kind of essentially animal intelligence things, especially about proximity, because if something's too close, that's not safe. Max, and this is Geological. Life, creativity, emergence, it's all inherently unpredictable. Our left brain tells us that order is necessary, and in fact, if you can't bring enough order, then it's impossible to make much progress in life, as being bounced from one unsettling experience to another does not allow for a staple sense of self to develop. You'd constantly inhabit the neurochemical purgatory a fight or flight. A certain amount of order and predictability is needed for trust and cooperation. Order is not inherently oppressive, although an overabundance of it certainly is. Order engenders trust, and it lets you know where you stand by creating boundaries and divisions that have consequences. Imagine going through life without a robust Wei Qi, and nobody, including yourself, respects you if you don't have the capacity to say no. We all know how that goes, and it doesn't go very well. But our right brain, that part trusts what's in the dark. It thrives and feeds on uncertainty, allows for the creative process with a loose, spontaneous flow that can chart a course without a map. It is capable of dealing with an ever-changing environment It has a capacity to bring everything to the table with a perspective of yes and to everything that arises. This is the part that can blur boundaries because it senses a greater unity. It's the part of you that can listen to someone with whom you disagree and still maintain a sense of connection and respect. It's a capacity that we all have to sense a greater whole that allows for the kind of innovation that creates jobs five years in the future that don't even exist today, that allows us to take apart what no longer works, or better yet, play by a different set of rules and cultivate a vision for the world in a way that the mainstream ignores because the best disruption doesn't look that way in the beginning. We need order. We need chaos. Inhalation, exhalation. Left brain logic and order and right-brain kaleidoscopic holism. The idealistic potential of heaven and the practicalities inherent in the solidity of earth. Known and unknown, doing and not doing, there's room here for it all. The tacit agreement of medicine is that we have knowledge, expertise, and experience, and so we're going to, air quotes here, do something that will be helpful. That our skills and methods are going to bring about a change for the better. That we have some tricks up our sleeve for improving our patients' health and well-being. When I think about it for a moment, that's a tall order. We might even be asked to bend the laws of nature. And isn't it curious that people come to us to be fixed when more often than not, we are looking to open up some kind of movement or process not immobilize it and nail it down. 
We are expected to know and to do something in service of our patients. But the problems people come into our office with are not isolated. They are attached to everything else in their life. There is a healthy amount of not knowing we need to walk through before arriving at an intervention that is helpful without doing harm. In this conversation with Nick Paul, we explore how we touch patients with both words and hands, how touch is a bridge between the right and left side of the brain, that there are responses within the quietude of not knowing, and how to follow the trail that leads to uncovering the positive resources within our patients that they did not realize that they had. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on diet as medicine. And the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting real Chinese medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and 
manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Our job is to be helpful, but sometimes that requires a measure of non-doing and not knowing on our part so that the action we take can be of deep benefit to our patient. Nick has been on the podcast before, and I always enjoy his perspectives on connection and the skilled use of language that opens possibilities neither the patient nor practitioner could have foreseen. Let's get into this. Nick Paul, welcome back to Geological. Hi. Hi, Michael. Very good to be back. It is wonderful to have you back. We are at the end of a special series on bodywork in Chinese medicine. And uh, you're a shiatsu guy. So, so I am. Yeah, so you came to mind. I, I always love talking to you shiatsu people. You know, I mean, we're part of the same tradition in many ways, right? We're, but you guys, you really use your hands, you know. Hands are the thing. <laughs> hands are the thing. In this business, you can also use your bare feet. You can use your elbows. But there's something very important about hands um, in relation to this whole subject. Um, there's a lovely quote from Ida Rolf, the, the, the you know developer of Rolfing, mm-hmm. said, uh, she had a very scientific background, which is often emphasized in, in when people talk about how rolfing evolved and so on. And she said, I, I work on the body because it's the only thing I can get my hands on. <laughs> <laughs> I work on a body because it's the only thing I can get my hands on. And that raises a very interesting question. Um, what was Ida? What was so important to Ida Rolf about using her hands? Because she, you know, she used a lot of um, her background in science, biochemistry, and so on, uh, thinking about the structure of the body and so on. But that simple quote tells us there's something profoundly important about contact through the hands, what the hands know, and so on. And I've been thinking about this in preparation for our little chat, Michael. Um, and it takes me back to things I've mentioned before on the podcast, the, the brilliant work of Dr. Ian McGilchrist and his examination of how the two sides of the brain operate differently, have different priorities, and how most of what we think of as language for most people sits in the left hemisphere of the brain and that hemisphere sort of listens to language for its literal content 
Yes, the right hemisphere does a lot with language too. It listens to the what uh, Stephen Porges calls the prosody, the, the rhythm, the musicality, and the emotional content of the language, of course. But we live now in a world which is completely dominated by the, the left side. That what you know, what does the language mean? What are you trying to say? Very literal sense. Until you move into the realm of poetry or music or movement or dance, all, all the things that are more and more devalued in our educational system these days. What are we looking for in the educational systems? Reading, writing, and math. The much more left-brain things. So the the point about hands is that there's some, I'm no expert on this, but in evolutionary um, psychology, that there's a theory that because humans were able to stand up, start using their hands much more in much more sophisticated ways, that that's probably where language started from, from hands as gestures, hands as pointing, sounds, grunts, meaning, beginning to develop. And so it's like the hands are like a bridge between that left brain that looks for the literal meaning of language and the right hemisphere, which is much more about feeling what's happening in the moment, what's actually happening now, that much more Zen sense of being present and being alive and aware to, as, as Ida Rolf said, what's going on in this body that I can get my hands on. So that's my opening pitch. <laughs> hands as bridge. Okay. That, that throws a rock in a pond for me. I, I feel like I'm clumsy with my hands. One of the reasons why I think I spend so much time attending to them, looking to learn subtle palpation or, or just looking to learn not even subtle palpation, but like, what am I feeling? Let's just start with what am I feeling? Not a bad place to start. But my head's so noisy. And I like thinking and I love theories. You know, science was my favorite subject in school. I, I never had any kind of musical understanding in school. I mean, it was like a foreign language. And I wasn't even interested in foreign languages back then. So hands is almost like a second language to me. And yet here we are with these incredibly kinesthetic beings. It, in some ways, it's our first language. So I, I always love these conversations where, where we talk about this kind of thing. And when you said hands as a bridge, it, it, it struck up a thought that I've heard from a number of people that I've talked to, that when you are attending to your hands, when you are attending to what you're feeling, attend first, sense first, be present first. See what shows up without thinking. And then you can think about it later. You can put a theory to it or decide what you're going to do. But first, sense. And, and so I hear you talk about hands as a bridge between the right and left side of the, the brain. And I think, oh my God, that's right. It is a bridge. And when I think about hands as a bridge rather than a thing in themselves, 
well, all of a sudden, I feel like I have a different relationship with my hands. Yeah. And actually, there's a lovely mindfulness exercise you can do, which is simply, as you sit, to meditate, instead of attending to what's going on in your head, you just shift your attention to what's going on in your hands. Mm. And if you try that for a moment, um, I mean, keep talking, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just notice, because actually, you know, in that homunculus map in the brain, that neurological map in the brain of the body, I'm sure you remember that the hands take up a huge amount of space on that map. Gigantic. Our are really wired into our hands and much more than most other parts of the body. So if you just sit for a moment, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not driving, <laughs> you can do this too. Just sit for a moment with your hands resting in your lap or resting on your knees or whatever's comfortable. And instead of paying attention to what's going on in your head, just get curious about what's happening in your hands. Mm. And as soon as I do that, I start feeling kind of tingling there. I start feeling a real connection between my hands and my knees. And it's like a process has begun. Um, and that's natural, I guess, for me, because that's my job. It's the neurological pathways are pretty well formed there. As soon as my hands start doing something, everything starts coming alive. Yeah. Yes. How about for you? Well, as we're sitting here in this moment, and you offer the suggestion of attend to what the feeling is in my hands, my empty hands, in contact with the air, and uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a tingly feeling, almost like. Well, you know, I do podcasting, so I tend to sound quite a bit. There's always a sound in the room. Whatever room you walk into, there's a sound. If you if you stop and pause any room you're in and listen, you'll hear all kinds of things. Maybe the background of, of the air conditioner, or there might be somebody in the next room making noise. I mean, there's always some kind of sound. Washing machine down the hall, there's always a sound in the room. So as I'm just sitting here and attending to my hands at this moment... Oh, there, there's a little tingling. There's Oh, there's a little tension here in my thumb joints. And I realize that my index finger knuckle is, uh, I don't know, there's a feeling there that I, that I wasn't aware of before. Almost yeah. feels a little, I, I could call it stiff. I don't know if it's stiff, but there, there's something there. So, yeah. yeah, just pausing for a moment to see what's there. That seems like a really great start of almost anything. And let's just try, try that. If you stay with that little feeling of stiff in one of in your finger, mm. is there anything else about that stiff in your finger? Yes. Well, as I as I begin to move them a bit, um, the joint moves just fine. I can feel how, like the muscles in the tendons are moving. You know, through the various. Uh, tendons and the way things are connected together. I used to know all the names of all that physiology, but I don't anymore. So I'm, I'm recognizing that. That's interesting. So I yeah. tend to my hands. I recognize I used to have names for every single bone and tendon. 
and and that's a much less focused picture these days. I know they're called like carpals and metacarpals and and things like that. And rather than going into the labels, which is the left hemisphere, mm -hmm. what happens when you just come back to the feeling in your finger? Yeah, they're, they're, they're a little stiffer than I remember them being. Yeah. It's, so just, it's just that they're a little stiffer. A, and it's raining stiff. today. Yeah, so there's a connection, perhaps. Maybe. Yeah. But that's just a very quick demonstration of why it can be helpful to use clean language in uh, a session with a patient. Because for one thing, it, it helps to bring attention to symptoms that the, the patient may have labeled as some, you know, have a formal medical label for and be kind of alienated from. It helps the patient to just bring attention to what's actually going on in their own body. And as you just demonstrated there, Michael, that there's a, a, a kind of natural tide and for the mind to go back to the labels, to look for the carpal and, you know, to look for anatomical labels and so on, rather than just to stay with what's actually happening. And even if it's just a little feeling in a finger. Of course, if, it's a, if somebody's talking about their anxiety or their depression, and you ask them whereabouts is that, that question may be a big surprise to them. But most people will actually find there is a location, somewhere in the head, somewhere in the body. And if you ask them to stay with that, to, to, is there anything else about that, and so on. Then, again, the process begins. The attending to something. And I would say, when I'm teaching workshops, we have our hands, we have our words, but nothing is more powerful than the simple fact of paying attention. So the simple practice of paying attention whether with our hands or our words, both are ways of touching. Yeah. We can touch very deeply with our tone of voice or the language that we choose to use. Yeah. It's absolutely that as well. I, I notice for myself, I notice this personally, I notice this in clinic, how quickly that labeling, sense-making part of the mind wants to come in and go, I got the answer, I got the answer. Look, it's this, it's this, it's this. Look over here, look over here. No, it's in my shoulder. The problem's my shoulder. I told you the problem's my shoulder. Even though I watched someone you walk in with a limp. Right, the problem's my shoulder. And so this, this mind that is constantly, constantly chattering at us, trying to be helpful, I think, for the most part. Although, look at any person with anxiety or depression, that, that chattering mind is more problem than, than solution bringer. Given that, and I'm, I'm, I'm making a very broad generalization, I'm going to ask you, do most people work this way? Or are there people who they really can go into their, their, their somatic experience or they can, they can decouple that left brain language making part or is that or is that something that really follows people wherever they go and, and especially into a treatment process and and what to do about that good question the way that most people seem to talk about body work these days 
whatever the discipline they're coming from, Eastern or Western. And I have been reading a bit about rolfing lately and fascinated to find out, for example, that there's rolfing is taken off in Japan uh, at the moment. Uh, but um, most people seem to talk about bodywork as a process these days rather than procedures. For example, rolfing started off as a set of procedures which you follow to, you know, with techniques. Nowadays, there's much more sense of, well, what is the process that begins to unfold? Certainly in my brand of shiatsu, which is called Zen Shiatsu, it was originally taught as a, in a sort of traditional Japanese way. You follow the procedures, you do that again and again, just like learning karate, you keep doing the same thing again and again for a few years, and then the body knows how to do it, knows what it's doing intuitively. Um, so that, that, that aspect of honoring the, the process, which of course is deeply embedded in lots of kinds of psychotherapy too nowadays, I think is very important. And I think it relates perfectly to a Taoist sort of approach, a Zen sort of approach to things. Um, and that's where I always find myself somewhere between East and West. I'm not that comfortable on either side. But between the two seems to be where things come alive for me. So that's one thing, the process. This thing about not knowing, which you were you know, talking about before. Is it really not knowing? Is it quieting the left brain? Certainly for me, the, the first part of that process is just to sit and listen with my whole body and um, then the next thing is just to accept whatever comes and then the next step is to really make an effort <laughs> to not know what's happening there so as you say the mind immediately starts saying oh i know what's happening there i know the diagnosis and so on staying in that space of of not knowing is is actually something that seems to get a response it's like the the chi or whatever it is you're listening to in the other person's body suddenly says oh here's somebody who can actually listen and not just label me but listen to me and that seems to be a really important part of the process does that make sense? Hello everyone, Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. 
Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Yes. And I realize I've missed a step in the work I do. We're having a conversation here, and I realize I've missed a step. What's the step? So I hear you talk about listening with the whole body. And that to me feels like an invitation. I was I was about to ask you, well, how do you listen with the whole body? But I, I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to hold that as an invitation. Go into the clinic, listen, listen with the whole body. Michael Max, whatever that means for you, go explore it. I'm looking forward to that. Accept what comes. Step two, accept what comes. Step three, not know. This is the crux to the matter for me. I keep thinking that if I listen well, if I accept what comes, now I'm going to know. If you, yeah. So instead of thinking, I'm okay, now I'm going to know, I'm listening well, I'm accepting what's coming, now I'm going to know what to do. Uh, hang on. Hang with the not knowing. Hang in that space. And then there's a response that comes in the not knowing. If I'm hearing you correctly. Yes, it depends what you're trying to connect with. And I'm curious in this conversation between an acupuncturist and a shiatsu person, for example, what is important? What's because you know I I have acupuncture treatments. I have a sense of what the person's doing. It seems not so much of a process there, there are there's more to the procedure if you like there's the taking of the pulse the other diagnostic things that happen there's some kind of uh, strategy whatever you call it mm, mm-hmm. and there's a decision to put the needles in particular places yes there is a de- at the end of the day there is a decision to put needles in certain places absolutely I suspect much like there's a decision that you make about I'm going to work on this person's leg. Or Well, it I'm... isn't a decision. This is this is the difference, I guess, mm. for me. I mean, there's many styles of shiatsu, of course, and you can do it that way and say, okay, I've got a diagnosis here, so I'm going to work on that meridian and their leg. Uh, for me, the those steps of coming to just that place of sensing something, accepting what's happening, and then staying in the place of not knowing. Um, I guess in a practical sense, it's more about asking questions about the thing rather than thinking that I know what it is. But really, this takes, for me anyway, it always brings me back to thinking about the body. What, What is the body? Most of our body, most of our neurology is taken up with exactly the same things that animals' bodies and neurology is taken up with, which is the incredibly complex task of moving physically through space. And equally complex task of knowing what's safe and what's not safe, Mm. what's nourishing and what's poisonous. (laughs) These kind of essentially animal intelligence 
things, especially about proximity, because if something's too close, that's not safe. And when I'm working with with the chi, with somebody's body, or with their nervous system, that, that's how, how I'm thinking about it. How is it? How can I approach this animal intelligence, which is enormously engaged and alert if any kind of trauma is involved, for example, which is there for all of us in some way. How can I approach that in the most sensitive way, in a way that is truly responsive so that if it feels like I'm not welcome there, then I don't go there. But the lovely thing about anybody's system is that you know, the elasticity, one, one part of the body says don't go there, immediately involves an invitation coming from another part of the body, if you like. So rather than deciding to go to a place diagnostically, I'm led, and I'm sure other body workers you've been speaking to have been saying the same thing, but I, I'm led to where am I invited to go. Mm. So in, in all, all my attempts to develop this over the years, I, I realized looking back that I've always been following it, what I'd call a relational model. How do I build a relationship with the chi, the nervous system, the sashia, whatever you want to call it? And, and how can I build that relationship and let it show me how best to serve it? Yes. I, I love the phrase animal intelligence. I just love that. Like, yes, that's right. It, it, it's like a little secret. We're not supposed to let each other know we're animals and we're using our animal intelligence to, to like check each other out. But we do. We do it all the time. Of course we do because we have that animal intelligence. If you sit with any critter that you might have in your house, a cat, a dog, right? The way that we communicate with them is through that animal intelligence. Do you want to be touched now? Yes, no. Um, are you hungry? Are you available? Are you dangerous? Yeah, the, we all know about that. So I love the idea and the reminder. So thank you, Nick, for that, of, of walking into my clinic with an invitation to watch the animal intelligence. Yeah. Well, I'm, I don't know how much of the way I work would be directly useful for acupuncturists. But I do think the kind of a background um, atmosphere can be better created if you're thinking about this animal intelligence thing or um, if, you're, yeah, if you're sort of bringing that relational sensitivity to how to be with a person. And if, if you ask me, well, what's so important for you, Nick, about using words as well as touch um then that is that is one thing i think simple professional skills communication skills if if we can use language not just to say hello not just to ascertain questions and build diagnostic pictures and find out about health history but if we can also have a, a sort of liminal space where we invite the patient to come into a more mindful relationship with himself before they lie down, before needles go, before I start to touch. 
that's when I use the clean language just to help a person begin to get more of a sense of what's really going on for them. And this simple sitting together business, this, it, you know, it's, it's well-researched, well-documented, called co-regulation. If somebody who's in trouble comes in and has made a decision to sit with somebody who is professionally there and available and in a reasonably good state of alignment between heaven and earth, then that person who's in trouble is likely to find some kind of regulation beginning to happen as we sit together. There's a lovely quote, if I may quote this one. It's from a Zen teacher called Kobo, who came over from Japan in the 60s as an assistant to Shinru Suzuki, who wrote the Zen Mind Beginner's Mind book, and um, became a respected teacher himself. And he talks about sitting together. He says, to create a peaceful world, the ultimate answer is to sit together. And of course, he's talking about Zazen meditation sitting. But I also think of this as just sitting together with a patient. The ultimate answer is to sit together. We don't know who will come to sit next to us mother or lover or stranger, but sitting together for a couple of minutes or maybe days gradually lets us understand. Sitting together lets us see things without argument or fight because the body is being taught to understand what this body, this life is and how other lives are. Mm. And that for me is sitting together. And that's what we do in our clinics. I mean, whether we're acupuncturist or, or shiatsu or whatever label we want to put on it. And, and in many ways, Nick, I don't, I don't see the work you do and the work I do being that different. Yes, I, I, I use needles. I've got some theories banging around in my mind that help to guide me. It, it, and this is one of the crux of, of doing the work. My job as an acupuncturist is to it is to do something at some point for me to do my job i've got to put a few needles in a few places that are hopefully very beneficial and and my job is to figure out where those needles go and i could do that with theories i could do that with point prescriptions based on something that somebody told me you know, or how a pulse feels, or how a cranial rhythm feels, or am I just drawn to something, right? You use the phrase, uh, to be led to where I'm invited to go. And, and I would say that there's an aspect of that that informs the work that I do, at least at this stage of the game. It's like, where am I being led? That would be helpful. And how do I know that I'm being led there? How do I know I'm not making up a story in my own mind? Oh, these people, you know, this person, they have an excess of fluids. They've got, you know, too much tie-in spleen fluid, and I need to drain off some of that fluid. That's what I'm going to do for them. All right, that's a, you know, that's an idea, and I've got lots of things that I might point to that will corroborate that for me, that that might be a good idea. But then there's also just sitting with somebody and how do they talk and what are they talking about? What's the tone of their voice? What's the, the texture of their musculature? 
And all those things can lead you to a point that might be useful. Lead you to a point, yes. Yes. And it's a nice little intro for me to just talk through the clever steps that I might use, consciously mm. or unconsciously, when, I, when, I, when I'm approaching a point, if you like, because, you know, yes, we work with points in Shiatsu. So I was sort of thinking about this and trying to figure out what is my process there. So the first thing is, what, I know that there's what are the different kinds of touch that I'm using in this process. So the first kind of touch is what I'd call a locating touch, which as in acupuncture, you sort of run your finger slightly over the point to find exactly where it is. That's a locating touch. That's just completely trusting the intelligence of your hands mm. to zoom in on the exact place where the point actually is. It may not actually be where the textbook says it should be, but where the point actually is at this moment today with this person. So that's locating touch. Then the second kind of touch goes back a bit to what I was saying about the animal intelligence. That the second kind of touch is a very much pre-cognitive sense of, is it okay to be here? Is, is this point open? Is it closed? Is it frightened you know it what's what's the actual message i'm getting here if it's not okay to be here then i don't stay there that's really important and it, it's uh, again a very important one you're working with trauma as soon as the point senses that you're sensitive then something immediately changes straight away so that's number two is that um that kind of touch the sort of just sensing is it okay to be here kind of touch then the number three be begins to become more relational or what she, i would call sort of hello kind of touch or one of my teachers bill palmer calls the front door touch like a knocking mm -hmm. on the front door there you're actually acknowledging that you are there that the point is there you're kind of saying hello to it and you're kind of asking permission to begin a conversation and again that's a specific state to be in, place to be in, specific kind of touch. And then the fourth, not necessarily changing the quality of the touch, but the intention, then is that's where I might bring in a clean question, asking myself, what is it like here? Um, I'm sorry, say that again? What, what is, is it, it like here? What is it like here? Yeah. And once you've got the permission of the point to be there and to have some kind of conversation, then you're, it's not like you're spying on it or intruding or uh, imposing this diagnostic intention. It's actually more of a conversational, more of a relational, this what's it like here, often there's quite a, f a flow of information back. And not just a flow of information, but uh, often I notice a little movement in the person's body as this conversation gets going, you could say. What's it like here? And then we come back to the other meaning of bridge, that the, um, the sense of metaphor. Metaphors are like a, a bridge between felt sense, image, and language. Then the metaphors begin to flow. Of course, metaphors flow or come, hopefully, when you're asking the patient clean language questions. And, and that's a... Uh, to go on a bit here, <laughs> I'll give you an, an example here. Yeah. Like I, uh, somebody came to see me who had 
a relational issue going on. And the metaphor they had was that the, they're there and the, the other person is, is over there and there's a kind of dark chain connecting them. So that's a metaphor. Recognize the metaphor. You can, you can get baffled or by metaphors, you can ignore them, or you can get curious about them. And in clean language, we're encouraged to get curious about them. So I ask more questions about this dark chain. And one thing that happens commonly is a person tries to get rid of the, the, the apparently negative thing, tries to get rid of the dark chain. Well, I'm trying to cut it in two. I'm trying to make it more away. But they never go. <laughs> Those things, that never happens. The, the, you know, the intelligence of the metaphor is much deeper than the intelligence of the cognitive mind. And in this particular case, I asked a few clean questions about it, and it was quite clear that it wasn't going to go away. And since the person comes to Shiatsu, I said, well, is that a good place to lie now? So we do some Shiatsu, following the kind of process I've been talking about. Right at the end, I pick up the little finger holding a small intestine point. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is a really important point in terms of not knowing. I never pretend or try or worry that I don't know why I'm doing it. But I held it for a bit. Something happened, let it go, let her rest for a moment. And then, is that, is that a good place to finish? And she said, yes, that was amazing. Just at the end there, when you held that, my little finger, I saw that dark chain just completely dissolve. And now it's gone. And that for me is a sort of gratifying example of why I enjoy using language as well as touch. Because the, with the language, we'd, able to, we'd been able to bring into consciousness in the form of metaphor some representation about what wasn't right with this, with this relationship. And then through the energy work, something happened that didn't actually, wasn't ready to happen with the um, just using language alone. It occurs to me, I'm just thinking as a patient for a moment, that I could come in and have the safety in a situation with somebody to say something like, yeah, I've got this dark chain. Like, that's a little bit crazy. You're probably not going to say that to a regular medical health practitioner. Who would you say that to? You're not going to say it to your partner. I got this chain between us. It's dark. Just to be able to come in and have that spoken, to have it present, to name it, to allow it to be in the room. I have found in my practice, people say all kinds of things because I'm an acupuncturist. And so they feel like they can say anything. So they say all kinds of interesting things. And then they'll often have a comment about something they said or that expresses to me that, that they're not crazy about this part that they just talked about, or they find this part that they just talked about, this dark chain, whatever, to be, you know, to be a problem, or they've got some bad opinion about it. I have found it's really helpful to let them know that all of them are welcome here. And in fact, this dark chain, like, like how long have you had this dark chain? You know, years. You know, I've had that dark chain for years. It's like, Wow. That's really loyal, isn't it? That part's really yeah. got something for you. Huh. Well, of course, in that case, that was 
speaking about the the dark chain emerges after a, a process of questions mm. of my, this sort of mindful sitting together kind of questioning. So it's as much a surprise to the patient as it is to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet when you're asking clean questions, you have to sort of curate the space carefully in that sense that this you know, surprises are going to come up and they might not be pleasant for the person that they're coming up for. But as long as the space feels safe enough, and I always give people, you know, the, hand it back to them, the, the power, the responsibility to stop or pause if it doesn't feel right. But if it does feel safe enough, then yes, you can exactly as you say, create an interesting receptive space for, for these weird things that come up. Yeah, it's delightful. Now, I, I want to come back to something that you said you gave us several different steps of touch one is that locating touch like you would look for a point the second one really got my attention you're talking about being having like a precognitive sense is this open is this closed is it okay to be here that got my attention to interact with the space to interact with the place is it okay to be here going back to that animal sensing trusting that is it okay to be here yes no that seems like a vital step. I think I have overlooked that step entirely too often. And, and hearing you suggest that, that that we be attentive to it, it brings up this question because I, I, you know, one of the reasons I love talking with you is because of the unique way you have of looking at language and that you use language in a very skillful, thoughtful, inviting fashion. And one of the things that I find is I, as I work with clean language questions, there are spaces that come up very quickly where I go, is it okay to be here? Or I'll pick up something in my patient where they're like, oh my God, no one's ever asked me this. Is it okay to be here? Is it okay to go in and, you know, and follow what Michael just asked me to pay attention to? And, 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 I mean, I will pick this up often. Like, do I dare to go here with my patient? This seems so personal and intimate. Is it okay for me to be here with them in this way? Yes. Well, you, you say you think you've missed that, but it sounds like you do it all the time when you're asking questions. I... <laughs> well, there's a lovely contradiction. I, I always love those. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I am. A, I think I am attentive to it, and I often feel like I'm running up against. It's not safe enough yet. I, I think and, that's what it is. Yeah. It's not safe enough. I'm getting messages that? from my patients. Not safe enough. I'm the getting message. anxious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, that co-regulation business presupposes that the answers are coming interoceptively from within oneself as the practitioner as, as well as extra sense what's the word extra as well as from what you're picking up from the patient themselves your own body is probably telling you something and mm. for you as a very sound oriented person i'm sure you're picking up a huge amount of information just from tone of voice that kind of audio stuff that is coming from your patient, as well as facial expression, gesture, and so on. 
I think actually as, as we're talking about this, I think gesture, body posture, maybe coloring. I, I, I haven't attended a lot consciously to the, to the shifts in complexion, but as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking that's something to be more attentive to. I, I think there's a lot of information there that I've been overlooking. Mm. Um, but the, but the, the importance of it, mm. of another story I could tell from the workshop here, the importance of just being able to, to get to that point of, is it safe here or not? Mm -hmm. the, I was teaching a workshop in um, Brussels, and <laughs> this wonderful guy uh, volunteered to be, you know, the demonstration subject. And he was really um, full of health and vigor. And I, at first I wondered, does this guy got anything he wants to be uh, sorted out here or not? But as the questioning went on, he allowed himself to go into a more vulnerable place. And then when I invited him to lie down, I began to work. And after a while, I just came to this place at the, on the center of his chest. And it just seemed like an incredibly delicate place. It was almost like if you're trying to, you know, working with an unexploded bomb or something, like you have to be incredibly delicate. So I just let my finger just touch it slightly with my practitioner mind and doing a demonstration in front of the room. And, you know, I wanted to do something, I wanted to make something happen. But this point just said so emphatically and so quietly, no. Mm. So I said, okay, no. Well, what is the deal here? And it didn't say anything. But in that silence, it was sort of letting me know that it wanted me to know that it was there. All it wanted was to be acknowledged. So I backed off and did a little more and then we finished. And what was really interesting was that the next day of the workshop, he was pairing, paired up with a, another participant in the course. They did some clean language, they did some shiatsu. And when we went round the room at the end of that, he just said that was the treatment that got through and he, he basically said he was able to start talking to that his colleague there about something he'd never spoken about before in his life which is exactly what i'm talking about here he was able to talk about something to put into words to use language to discuss some trauma from his earlier life what i was getting in the previous day was touch that same you know that sense from the touch i'm not ready to to do anything with this yet but I want it to be acknowledged. Some, uh, and that's a lovely story for me because it, you know, it isn't just me. It's like the other participant in the course was able to do just as good a session and get to where the guy needs to get to. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they were feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, 
heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. I love this. It Nick, this this is such a counterpoint. I want to bring up a counterpoint right now. Um, and I'm speaking to acupuncturists here. I think, at least I know for myself, and when I listen to people in conversation, there's these stories we tell about who we are and the kind of work we do, and it can be so amazing, and it really can. And we all love those transformational stories of one treatment, and kaboom, it's completely different for somebody. It's kind of satisfying as a practitioner to like have that kind of fireworks in your back pocket. And, you know, it's great when patients go out and say, yeah, man, one treatment, my life was transformed. So there's that. And, and we have these ideas that, you know, we should be such a great practitioner. You know, we're so skilled, the high-level doctor, the patient walks in the room and you look at them and you know what to do. We talk about this. We have these archetypes, these stories that we tell. So I just want to put this up as a counterpoint. There's a part of us as acupuncturists, I'm going to own this for myself, that wants to be that high-level doctor. It's like, watch this kung fu. I'm going to open a can of whoop-ass on this problem. That is a complete opposite and counterpoint to what you were just talking about, of going to a place, and the place says, thank you for noticing me. That's enough. Like, I don't have anything to say right now other than I'm here. That's the complete opposite to the fireworks of the kaboom, amazing, look at this kind of a treatment. It's, it's, the, it's the total other side of there's something here. It's mysterious. It's quiet. It moves at its own tempo, in its own rhythm. But it, it's connected to a tide right? That, that goes through the complete ocean of their being. Yes. Well, I, I, you know, I, being English, I'm not very susceptible to being praised as a supreme practitioner, but <laughs> of genius. But um, the, you know, there, there is skill involved there. There's um, experience involved there. Mm. There's the simple willingness to be patient matters a lot in this approach. And all practitioners, all therapists who work with a process-based approach know that patience is a key part of it and bring the patient on board so that they don't feel there's someone who's being you know, treated. They're engaged in the process themselves. And that's what I always say when somebody comes to see me. I just Because the clean language doesn't work for me if, if I don't say this. I say, please make this your own space as best you can and i'm just here to do my best to ask the kind of questions that might help you get curious about and build a better relationship with what's going on in your whole embodied self 
and if a person buys that contract, then then off we go. But a lot of people aren't ready for that, of course. Nick, so, I, I I'm thinking about using the phrase "make this space as much you can your own." I have a not small amount of patients that would look at me with the expression of "What are you even talking about?" Yes, well, with those people, you just have to exude a sense that this is your space and it's a safe space. Actually, mm. not this is your space, but this is your safe space. It's a safe space. Obviously, when people are in, you know, coming from that kind of a place, you just have to work much more slowly and negotiate. We've talked before about negotiation and the skills of negotiation. It's all a negotiation. And just offering evidence, often those people are working much more from the left hemisphere than from the right. They're working point of view of the left hemisphere as the gatekeeper of their experience. Does this have a label? Does this have, does this have a medical name to it? Is this okay? Rather than from what's actually going on in the awareness in the moment. So with those kind of people, you just have to work much more slowly. I, I, I guess I don't see an awful lot of them because they take one look at my website and think no thanks <laughs> <laughs> well this this is one of the really good reasons to have a website yeah. that as completely as possible represents who you are and what you have on offer yes um, people do that a lot i mean you go to the about mickey section on the website and it's rather wonderful i think to read how we as practitioners describe ourselves in a, of course it's marketing, but you have to put yourself out there. You have to offer some sense of your own vulnerabilities yes. and expertise. What's the mixture here? What can you expect? Yeah. There's one other thing that comes to me about the, um, the doing or the non-doing. Cause again, this phrase non-doing comes up an awful lot when you talk to body workers. Oh yeah, I get it to that that zone where it's just non-doing. It's just flow. And I'm not at all sure that flow and non-doing are the same thing. I think one way to define non-doing is I, I like the definition that I think Burton Watson uses in his The Way of Chang Tzu. He talks about non-doing as as something which it's an act. It's not. It's not non-action. It's action which doesn't have a purpose or goal, which um, serves the self. That's one way to think about non-doing. And there's a lovely little exercise you can do with that one, which is just to notice yourself at any moment in your day when you're engaged in purposeful activity, whatever it may be, getting your breakfast cereal or walking to your treatment room or anything that's purposeful, then suddenly just give yourself a mindful moment and stop. And notice how all your musculature and all your cognitive senses engaged in purposely doing something, going somewhere, moving. And then stop. And just noticing, ah, oh, how much energy goes into being purposeful. And then very slowly continue with the movement like, you know, it's a bit like mindful walking or something like that. Mm -hmm. You're still going there to do the thing that you have the purpose to do, but you're in the moment and you're noticing absolutely everything about it. That's a lovely little exercise you can do to sort of crank up your, your non-doing 
So, <laughs> and the, the other point I would make about what I'm doing is absolutely not about being still. It can be about being still. I mean, you were talking before about being so sensitive to, to sound, where I was talking about being sensitive to what's going on in my hands. And you no, know, these things are different for each different person. So um, being still might work really well for one person as a way into this non-doing, sitting together, co-regulation, all that stuff. On the other hand, there's a wonderful bit in the book by Murakami, that Japanese novelist, who's also a very keen runner. He has a book called What I Talk About, or, yeah, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And in one of the final chapters, he talks about doing a 24 hour marathon. And 24 hour. 24 hour marathon. To, yeah, so it's longer than a marathon, I guess. 24 Almost hours. And how towards the end of that, he just completely lost all sense of self. He was just moving, he was a, something moving through space. But being a writer, he writes about it really beautifully. And so, you know, he's doing a lot there. There's a lot of action, activity, but he's finding himself in this space of non-doing. Um, so you can be at either end of the spectrum or somewhere in the middle, but I think the non-doing is, is the is the last part of the process for me when I'm engaged in working with someone. It's like, okay, where is this touch taking me? There's a kind of playfulness to it, maybe a sort of pushing hands quality that you might relate to from Tai Chi. Mm -hmm. But everything I'm doing, I'm doing it as sensitively I can to, to hear what's the response now. Just the way, in a different sense, you put a needle in and then you come back a bit later and find, well, what's the response? You know. So the fine-tuning that responsivity, I guess, is another thing that sort of makes it work. Makes it joyful, to be honest. Ah, there it is. Rather than a job. There it is. Yeah, it's wow. It's a joyful activity. That, I love that. It makes it joyful. How do you know when you're on that beam? It's joyful. Well, it may not be joyful at the moment, at the moment that you're doing it, but, no, but it's, as I'm it's, speaking it's, to you, yes, I just feel, yes, that this is joyful. Yes, yes. Well, in, in the same way, I'm going to come back to animal intelligence here. In the same way that you can be interacting with somebody or their body and, and pick up, this is not safe, or no, not right now. Right? It's a no. Doesn't mean no forever. Might just mean no right, not right now. Like like you had with that person, who you were demonstrating with, in your shiatsu class. Just enough to be acknowledged. And, and then there's the moments where it is joyful. There's a there's some kind of a connection. There's some kind of a flow. There's there is something that lights up that animal intelligence. And it's like okay, on target. Hmm. Joy, joy could be one of the avenues of. Okay, there's something going on here. Yeah, that's one way to move the chi for sure. Very much so. I think the the intention and whatever quality you convey through touch, because touch is a wonderful way to to convey intention um, to the other person. Those things are so important. 
and I should say that touch is just an amplified form of this sitting together, this being together. The, mm. You know, the psychotherapist Alan Shore, S-C-H-O-R-E, has done brilliant uh, persuading the psychotherapy profession that when you are sitting with someone, it isn't just a, a verbal conversation. It's not just a head-to-head meeting. It's a body-to-body meeting. And he did decades of research to make this um, point acceptable <laughs> to the left brain process of psychotherapy. And I think, so touch is an amplified form of it, but just the sitting together, you know, is the human thing, as that quote from Coburn emphasizes. It's it's human thing to sit together, it's human thing to eat together, it's a human thing to drink together. This bringing us back to our mammal nature, our animal intelligence, to dance together, to talk together, to sleep together. <laughs> These are all very mammalian behaviors, and that is mostly what we are. So if you want to connect with someone to give them a treatment, because their chi is stuck or stagnant or low or buzzy. <laughs> Just, you know, remember that these are two mammals here trying to get on together. And then the animal intelligence of that system is just opens to you immediately. And you're literally in the animals. You, you only have to talk to practitioners who work with dogs or horses, you know, which have been traumatized to to hear these wonderful stories of how at first the dog or the horse won't even come near them, they do the right thing, there's a beginning of approaching, that process of approaching, that that making sure it's safe, and then suddenly, wow, the whole system opens up. Um, The language isn't involved because it's a horse. (laughs) Or horse language is involved. Yes, well, that that language of... We're kind of back to the beginning here, yeah. that language of being together yeah. and, and, and having that space. For me, this is key. It's something really to, to take away and chew on that, that space of not knowing is not an emptiness with nothing. There's this fertile something in it. But again, it, it, it moves at a different tempo than my very fast left brain mm. that's looking to put labels and understand processes and draw a map and all that other stuff. It's And looking to, to treat this patient and get and looking the to treat patient. this patient. And this is mm-hmm. a question I've always asked is, you know, how long does this take? If you're going to ask all these questions, how long does it take? Uh, for me personally, I find that a two-hour session is just right. It always seems to be just the right amount mm. of time. But that obviously isn't going to work for everybody trying to run a busy acupuncture practice. But if you, you know, if you talk to Margot Rossi, <laughs> who <laughs> has been on this podcast a few times, she'll give you an acupuncture's point of view on how effective it can be to to ask a few clean questions. In the process of acupuncture treatment. Well, I think so often, speaking as an acupuncturist, I feel like my job is to first connect with the person that I'm working with. Because without that, there's nothing to work with. 
And and then the second is to, through whatever process we go through, I really include the patient in the we because we go through it, practitioner and patient, that there are some points revealed points that revealed. would like some attention. And, yeah. and then there's the skill of being an acupuncturist, like what kind of attention do I give? Is it a tashing needle? Is it a big, fat, deep, thick needle? Is it, you know, like what is it? Do they need something gentle? Do they need something strong? That's, you know, that's all for us to figure out as practitioners. But the key thing is where. And, uh, you know, we have this idea in Chinese medicine of the 10 questions, and, and those 10 questions can help us to get to certain places. And yes, it can be helpful. I feel like what we've been talking about in this conversation and really throughout the whole month, if you all have been listening to the series, is, is how to be attentive to the places that are asking for a little attention. And they're probably asking in a fairly quiet way. And, and there's a real power in quietude. It almost sounds like the name of a trigram in the I Ching, the power of quietude. I wonder if it, maybe there is one. But uh, I think that's a very important point because even if somebody's coming to you uh, and the trauma is very obvious and on the surface and there's a lot of activity and energy, you know, they're presenting themselves in a very young way, the quiet quietude, the point of quietness mm -hmm. is still in there waiting to be found, waiting to be connected with. And um, the, the skill with clean language, which is easily developed, is just to listen to, as soon as they start using some positive word, to ask more about that positive word. Or if they, as happened to me recently, somebody comes in, and there isn't a single positive in what they have to say because they've just been through such a traumatic episode. So the single positive, we're just sitting together. I'm not saying, in fact, I don't know what to say for a bit. And then I remember, oh, there's a clean question. And I just thought, well, what needs to happen? And there's a silence. And then the other person just mentions some, something which is resourceful. Mm -hmm. Because I've asked them. Instead of feeling, oh, God, this is terrible for them, I must, go, I must do something to rescue them. I stick to my guns. I sit with them. And I just thought, well, what needs to happen? In other words, you're offering it back to them, the responsibility to, to find a way out, to begin to connect with this quiet, quietitude. And that's what happened. The one positive resource, I asked more about that, at least another positive resource, safety begins to be mentioned, and the body begins to change, the breath begins to deepen. And sooner or later, it's okay. So is that a good place to lie down? We can begin the chance so looking for that point of, of quietness, of stillness, mm -hmm. is, yes, what it's all about. Nick Pohl, that is so helpful. Look for the positive resource. Listen for the positive resource. What has somebody identified as helpful for themselves? Go more into that. Follow that. That super helpful. Thank you. I think I have, and this is at times why patients may be 
show up in my presence with, nope, not safe, or I have no idea what you're talking about. I get that sometimes like that. I don't even know how to answer that question. I don't know what you're talking about. Actually, that's the word they say. I don't know what you're talking about. When I hear that, I, I hear, this isn't safe. I don't know what you're talking about because I haven't followed the positive resource. I followed something negative or difficult or problematic. And for damn good reason, I don't know what you're talking about. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. That, that, that's a really helpful, really helpful way to, to, to redirect what I'm attending to and, and to choose what I begin to amplify with clean language. Yeah. It's also the fundamental principle in Zen Shiatsu is that you're not primarily attending to the pathologies. You're using it through touch. You're looking for the healthy energy that's there in the, in the energetic blueprint, if you like. Yes. That was always there and is looking to be reconnected. Great. Yeah. No, I'm well, Michael, I'm delighted if I managed to say something that's actually helpful to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we'll leave that up to the listeners. I think okay. there's certainly been a lot in our conversation today, and I, I thank you so much for your time today and for for all the times that you've been here on Geological and sharing your experience with, with shiatsu, with clean language, with uh, unique ways uh, of touch that you use, both with hands and words and spirit and heart. And I just I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Michael. If anyone is interested, I'll be doing an online course for clean language for body work practitioners starting end of September. And me and Margot Rossi will be doing one specifically for acupuncturists starting next February. Fantastic. So, we will yeah. have links on the show notes page for folks. All right, my friend. Well, I just I just want to say one more thing before we end. This is the end of August, as uh, all y'all are listening to this. This is the fifth anniversary of Geological. And and I hadn't realized this when we sat down to, you know, create a time to get together for this conversation, but you were on the second anniversary show. I had opened it up to uh, listeners, come let's have a conversation, and somehow just organically, here we are again at the fifth anniversary, continuing with the conversation, so it's it's been a real delight. It is a conversation, I, I think that's why I find it a pleasure and privilege to be part of it, the ongoing conversation. Yes, Thank indeed. you so much, Michael. All right. Until next time, then. Until next time. I so appreciated Nick's perspective on the response that can arise in the process of not knowing and his thoughts on catching ourselves in the midst of purposeful activity and pausing for a moment to reorient our attention and then continuing with the activity along with attending to ourselves as we move through that activity. Perception and awareness are slippery and subtle, and they can make a big difference in those moments that arise in between our sensing and labeling. Nick's reminder that we all have a keen animal intelligence that we often dismiss or ignore, but it is there, and it's attentive all of the time. It's always with us, and it's always operating in the people that we serve. That animal intelligence is not to be ignored or glossed over because it doesn't fit with our ideas of what it means to be a good person. It's powerfully elemental and an ally 
in the work that we do. Touch is the first of the senses that life develops to know when to move forward or away from something in their environment. It's reliable in ways that our thinking mind can't quite measure. And if you've been with us for the conversations of this past month, I suspect you'll have a renewed appreciation for how connecting, sensing, and following, how the state of our being and attention are so key to connecting in the surprising ways that healing can arise. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.